0: This podcast is brought to you by JörgTreator.com and comes with a warning. Never seek praise from your political hero. It's bound to backfire badly. Look what my hero had to say about me.
1: I mean, you as an ideas person, someone new in public life, not besmirched by the wrestling, what a joke. And let me not hear from the press gallery ever again about this as a non-political person. I mean, frankly, frankly, well... We'll, f- well, faint if we hear that again. That, now, let me tell you, Mr. Speaker, unless he's in with a question in his hand written by someone on his staff, and with us he's useless, useless, absolutely. I'm in fact, Mr. Speaker, it's an insult to one's professional skills to have to be in such a debate. <laughs> to have to be in such a debate. He thought bluster and volume and decibels were to there for, for, for substitute for quality, quantity to substitute for quality, and amplitude and noise. The substitute for real argument. I mean, this is the sort of humbug which just makes us sick. Yeah. And it's particularly made us sick about you, you fraud, you disgraceful, disgusting fraud. The, the answer is mate, mate, because I want the to for do more. you slowly. I want to do you slowly. I mean, no, no, I know. There's got to be a bit of sport in this for all of us. No, no, there's got to be a bit of sport in this for all of us. And in the psychological battle stakes, we are stripped down and ready to go. Ready to go. And uh, I want to see those ashen face performances, more of them. I want to be encouraged. I want to see you squirm out of this load of rubbish over a period of months. There's going to be no easy execution for you. No easy execution for you, and if you think I'm going to put you out of your misery quickly, you can think
0: again. Welcome, potties, to Reflective Contemplations, the modern version of a political fireside chat. First, we're going to hear once again from the Prince of Darkness, who will leave town in just a few weeks' time. We're going to put Trumpism into the wider context of American populism, asking whether Trump has just been an apparition, or whether Trumpism is there to stay possibly influencing and shaping the American body politics for a decade or even generation to come. Before we do so, cop that. Andrew Jackson.
2: Andrew Jackson. A man named General Andrew Jackson of Tennessee. I wonder why they keep talking about Trump and Jackson, Jackson and Trump. Oh, I know the feeling, Andrew. I'm a big Andrew Jackson fan. Andrew Jackson was a military hero and genius and a beloved president. We had the greatest election. In all fairness, I used to hear Andrew Jackson. This was now greater than the election of Andrew Jackson. People say that. No, people say it. I'm not saying it, I, This was the equivalent or greater. Today, I call attention To another anniversary, the 250th birthday of the very great Andrew Jackson. Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, and Abraham Lincoln, and many of our greatest presidents fought with the media and called them out, oftentimes, on their lies. We are the country of Andrew Jackson. They say Andrew Jackson was always the nastiest campaign. Uh, They actually said we topped it in the words of Andrew Jackson Farmers are the basis of society and true friends of Liberty great story love that story have great respect for Andrew Jackson Andrew Jackson was called many names accused of many things and by fighting for change earned many many enemies Jackson's life was devoted to one, of very crucial principle. He understood that real leadership means putting America first. But that did not stop a man named General Andrew Jackson of Tennessee. Do you ever hear of Andrew Jackson of Tennessee? He was a great general and a great president, and his ragtag. Militia of patriots who are ready to fight to defend American independence. It's the state of Andrew Jackson, a great president and a great general, by the way. Andrew Jackson, who continues to be on the $20 bills. You know that. Federal agents arrested the suspected ringleader of the attack on the statue of the great Andrew Jackson in Washington, D.C. We've had a long and very storied history with Thailand. In fact, we were just mentioning that Andrew Jackson, who is on the wall, was the president when we first developed the big relationship. They wanted to rip down Andrew Jackson. They wanted to rip down George Washington. They were actually heading over to the Jefferson Memorial, if you can believe that. The very great Andrew Jackson,
0: Well, if you say so, Donald, who am I to argue with you? In fact, when the 45th president of the United States referred to Old Hickory, the general, the father of American populism, Andrew Jackson, I thought the Donald is trying to reach new intellectual lofty heights. But as it turned out, it was probably more a case of uh, Steve Bannon whispering into the ear of the commander-in-chief. In politics, it's always like in big business. The test is the outcome. The test is the outcome. And the Donald didn't pass the test on election night. Trump was everything but a Jacksonian. For a start, let's look at Trump's post-election behavior. Andrew Jackson in 1824 ran his first presidential campaign. And as you remember, he lost very narrowly to John Quincy Adams. It was the second election after 1800 that went to the House of Representatives because although Andrew Jackson got a majority, uh, got the most electoral votes in the Electoral College, he did not master an overall majority. And that meant the election went to the House. And John Quincy Adams with uh, Henry Clay, the Speaker of the House, they struck a deal, a typical Washington insider deal. And the deal was that Clay, as speaker and former presidential candidate, would help Quincy Adams to win the House and thus the presidency, and Henry Clay became Secretary of State. Unlike the Donald, unlike the Donald, Andrew Jackson accepted the outcome. He accepted the outcome. And Donald, after the election, showed what he was really about. Donald Trump is just a common old garden Republican. A conservative right-wing, hack who, who besmirches the reputation of decent, countless state and county election officials, especially those uh, in his own party. And these honorable Republicans do what democratically-minded citizens are supposed to be doing. They counted votes. They counted votes, irrespective of the outcome. And the Donald didn't like that. And in that regard, he is not Andrew Jackson. And when you look at his tenure in office since 2016, you will find that Donald Trump is just a pet house populist. A populist in name only. A populist that appealed to the Rust Belt, won the Rust Belt, and then didn't deliver. It is time to
2: drain the swamp in Washington, D.C. This is why I'm proposing a package of ethics reforms to make our government honest once again. When Bill Clinton, who was right about Obamacare two weeks ago, by the way, he said, it's crazy, crazy, came into office. He signed an executive order saying, if you work for the White House or a federal agency, you can't lobby the government for five years after you leave. But then President Clinton did what the Clintons always do. He rigged the system on his way out, right? Clinton lifted the executive order so Clinton cronies like John Podesta could start raking in cash. So here's what we as a group are announcing tonight. First, I'm going to reinstitute a five-year ban on all executive branch officials lobbying the government for five years after they leave government service. I'm going to ask Congress to pass this ban into law so that it cannot be lifted by executive order. Right? Second, I'm going to ask Congress to institute its own five-year ban on lobbying by former members of Congress and their staffs. It's enough. Third, I'm going to expand the definition of lobbyists so we close all the loopholes that former government officials use by labeling themselves consultants, advisors, all of these different things, and they get away with murder. not going to happen. Fourth, I'm going to issue a lifetime ban against senior executive branch officials lobbying on behalf of a foreign government. And fifth, I'm going to ask Congress to pass a campaign finance reform that prevents registered foreign lobbyists from raising money in American elections
0: and politics. Now, you can say many things about Andrew Jackson. He was, by all accounts, one of the most partisan presidents in American history. But, but, he delivered for his constituency. Now, Trump didn't. You cannot appeal to the Rust Belt and then pass tax policies that give tax breaks to the wealthiest part of society, and then hope to carry the Rust Belt four years later once again. And what I never quite understood is that after 2018, when the Democrats had won the majority in the House, Donald did not deliver on infrastructure spending. He did not rise above the fray. He was just an empty vessel for a Republican right-wing agenda. Unlike Jackson, he never rose above the fray. Now, when historians one day debate the mighty question whether Donald Trump hijacked the Republican Party or the Republican Party created Donald Trump, well, here's the answer. Look at the evidence. Look at the evidence. The right-wing turn of the Republican uh, Party started way back in 1994. Remember Newt Gingrich and his Contract for America? Donald Trump was not hijacking the party. Donald Trump was created by the Republican establishment. And that's why you hear in Washington these days all those Republicans in the Senate, in the House, just with a few exceptions. You don't hear many Republicans acknowledging the result. For political reasons, for Machiavellian reasons. Remember, the worldview of the Republican leadership is very different from the world view of us progressives. They think in terms of Machiavellian politics only, and they have no qualms putting party over country. That's not Jacksonian. That's not Jacksonian. So, who was Andrew Jackson? Who was this man who transformed American politics, who was the people's president, the first people's president. When I come back, I'm going to take a closer look of Andrew Jackson and his legacy. Now, dear listener, before I gonna shed more light on the Jackson presidency, particularly two aspects of it, there's something I really need to get off my chest first. Many people today rightly see Jackson as a democratic autocrat, a criminal even. This has, of course, a lot to do with the cardinal sins of the United States, slavery and settler colonialism. When we talk about Andrew Jackson and his legacy, it's very important to put the man into the context of his times. Now, I have never been a great fan of either cultural or historic relativism. And it still pains me that even today the foreign policy elites in Western capitals are fairly ambivalent when it comes to the modern forms of settler colonialism. When we deal with Andrew Jackson, we're going to have to consider the union at the time. The United States was far from being the superpower it is today. The fate of the Union overall was hanging in the balance. So let's just deal with slavery first. Now, the sentiments towards slavery were changing in the early 19th century, obviously. Um, Slave trading was almost an impediment to public office, especially on a federal level. Owning slaves was not. So Jackson, a frontier man, had approximately 100 slaves. He did trade in slaves, but not very much. So in terms of slavery as it was at the time, Jackson always believed that slavery has to be preserved in order to preserve the Union. Uh, The conflict was already simmering, which eventually, as we all know, would lead to the 1861 war. And then, of course, there is Jackson's legacy with regards to America's first people, uh, the Indian tribes. Now again, it is easy for us today, 200 years later, to sit here and say, well, Jackson was brutal, he was a criminal, and the legacy is not something he should be proud of, or America should be proud of. But remember, it's the craft of any good historian to place figures of significance and importance into the wider context of their times. And H.W. Brands, who has written the most authoritative biography of Andrew Jackson, has done exactly that. Unlike many making up the East Coast elite, which Jackson as a frontiersman despised, Jackson's dealings with the Indians were personal. As a general, he had been in contact with Indian tribes all the time. And as his legacy shows, his stance on the Indians was fairly ambivalent as well. On the one hand, he was this great warrior who had no trouble to dispossess Indians, to uh, forcibly remove them from territory. On the other hand, he had a fairly paternalistic attitude toward Indians. Now, in essence, his, as as historian H.W. Brands maintains, his stance toward the Indian tribes was not so much informed by a sense of cultural, racial or ideological superiority, but more as a service to the Union. Now Jackson, like many other contemporaries, believed that there is no place for Indians in the United States unless they are prepared, unless they are prepared to completely integrate um, and adopt the uh, way of life of most white Americans at the time. Now, Jackson's legacy as president was even worse. Remember, in 1832, there was a famous Supreme Court judgment siding with the Cherokee in Georgia. Jackson had always defended the rights of states to basically regulate the Indian affairs. And he maintained that either the uh, Cherokee submit to state regulation in Georgia, or they're gonna transfer from the east of the Mississippi to the west. The Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Cherokees. There's this famous saying from Jackson uh, that, well, Marshall and his court have decided, now let them enforce it. By the way, as Brands maintains, Jackson never said this. This was something an editor in New York put into Jackson's mouth. Nonetheless, it shows Jackson's predicament. He could only have enforced the ruling of the Supreme Court by deploying federal troops. Now, it's one thing, as the nullification crisis showed, to deploy federal troops in order to rescue the Union. But he was not inclined to uh, deploy federal troops uh, to rescue the Indians from deportation because uh, white Americans shooting at white Americans for such a cause was well beyond Jackson. So his passivity toward Georgia regarding the question of the uh, Cherokee led to the infamous Trail of Tears. That basically was the migration of the Cherokees from the east of the Mississippi to the west in 1838. Now, obviously, with Jackson being out of office already, uh, he could remain silent. Um, But his silence, I suppose, spoke volumes too. Now, that's one thing. I remember that Jackson at the time was pretty much in the mainstream of American attitudes toward the Indians. Jackson believed firmly that the Union had to be rescued. So when I'm, when I'm not focusing primarily on the question of slavery or the uh, uh, question of settler colonialism here, it's not because I'm mindless of what happened at the time. But I want to focus here on two much more important issues to the Jackson le- uh, uh, legacy when it comes to his stature as a populist. Now, let me set the scene for you. In 1834, in February, the weather was still cold in Washington. There was a place where political temperatures had reached boiling point, the Oval Office in the White House. Jackson had just received a delegation of New York merchants, which had come to deliver a petition signed by 6,000 other merchants seeking relief. Jackson was involved in a mighty battle with the Second Bank of the United States. Now Jackson was livid. Relief? You come to me seeking relief? Go to this monster Biddle, he will give you relief. There's no money here. By some accounts Jackson went even further than that, telling the merchants that Biddle and his minions should be put to death and society would be better off all for it. Now, whether that's true, we don't know. But this episode tells you a lot about Jackson's leadership style. He employed temper when it suited him. It's an act of theater, mainly. Unlike Donald Trump, Jackson understood the political game. He was a serious man, and he was not the outsider he made himself out to be. After all, it was the... Uh, Battle of New Orleans in 1815 that had made his reputation, that had cemented his reputation as the second coming of George Washington, so to speak. But he was also no stranger to politics, having had a stint in the House, having had a few stints as a senator. So Jackson knew how, to, how the game was played, and he employed temper to maximum effect, after all, remember, these merchants had never been spoken to like this by a rascal, by a by an unsophisticated frontiersman who, by the virtue of the people, was now occupying the Oval Office. These merchants kept their head down and left. What did Jackson do? He turned around to one of his aides and started laughing. I managed them well, didn't I? Let me deal with the bank question first because that is one of the most important legacies of Jackson as a Democrat. We are dealing here with the Second Bank of the United States. Remember, the First Bank of the United States was largely a brainchild of the Federalists in 1791. And this bank's mandate expired in 1811. Now, the Jeffersonians and the Democratic Republicans had not renewed the mandate of the bank. Five years later, following the war against England, which, by the way, ended victorious for the United States, but nonetheless, the currency had to be stabilized. So, the, ones, the former opponents of the bank thought better of it, and in 1816, under the Madison administration, a second bank of the United States was thus established. Now, this bank was controversial. There were constitutional questions as to the legitimacy of a national bank. But this bank also acquired a reputation for corruption. And Jackson, very much in keeping with many others on the frontier, despised banks. He despised fat cat bankers. Now, for a start, the Western economy worked very differently than that on the East Coast. The West was always short for cash. Other commodities became currencies. Horses, for example, Uh, slaves, land, etc., etc. So Jackson saw the bank right from the start as a threat to the republic, as a threat to democracy. Many in the East Coast elite, especially Samuel Biddle, the president of this bank, despised Jackson and he believed he could get the better of him. So plotting with Henry Clay. In 1832, he he was uh, likely to run once again as a candidate for the Whigs. Jackson had already founded the Democratic Party. Clay believed he could introduce a bill on Biddle's behalf, and Jackson would not veto it. He believed it would help him in the presidential election. Now, unfortunately for Biddle and Clay, Jackson got the better of them, because Jackson did, in fact, do just that. He vetoed the bill. But the conflict wasn't over. Biddle kept plotting, Henry Clay kept plotting, and there was a huge row ensuing. Because Jackson basically said, i going to ask the state banks to recall all the deposits from the National Bank. Now, Biddle had to react to that, obviously, and he reacted by freezing credit and calling in loans, which led to an economic Crisis. And that again brought us to 1834. The crisis was real. But Jackson was unrelenting. He believed this bank had to be finished no matter the costs. And he did exactly that. He won. Now the bank weakened and its mandate was not renewed. And so Jackson had one of the first major achievements as a populist. And remember, on the banking question, even though the East Coast elite despised him for it, He won re-election, he won re-election in 1832, and thus the fate of the Second Bank of the United States was sealed. The second major achievement of the Jacksonian era was nullification, or the successful opposition to nullification. Now that's one of the most interesting aspects of Jacksonianism. Now what happened? Let's first talk about tariffs. Now tariffs at the time were seen to either be a means of a government to generate revenue or to protect domestic industries. I just want to say that in 1828 Congress imposed tariffs to protect the northern domestic manufacturing industry. Now here you find the Underlying currents of slavery already coming to the fore because the southern economy worked very differently than that in the north. Um, the south imported most manufactured goods and the tariffs were a problem for them. For the north, of course, it was a very different story because for the north it protected domestic manufacturing industry. that was just evolving and booming and growing. Now, Jackson's vice president, who was one of the brightest, if not the brightest legal mind of his generation, came up with an extraordinary document. Being a South Carolinian, he penned a exposition which came to be known as the South Carolina Exposition, and the legal reasoning Calhoun employed was explosive. Now, he said this, any state, any state in the union has the right by act of legislation to nullify any federal provision, which the state deems unconstitutional. And South Carolina wanted to do exactly that with the tariff provisions of 1828, which were, by the way, renewed in 1832. Now, to solve this crisis, Jackson showed what metal he was made of. He threatened South Carolina to employ up to 40,000 federal soldiers. He was not inclined to see the Union break up over this, because essentially what Calhoun had argued was that the Union was null and void. Imagine any state can nullify any legislation, rendering it null and void just on the basis that it deems it unconstitutional. Now for Calhoun, liberty of the states always triumphed over unionism. And Jackson took a very different view. It drove the two men apart, obviously. But remember, the vice president was not the sort of office it is today. At the time, vice president became who came second in the electoral college. So Calhoun eventually resigned, went to the Senate to further his um, agenda as a states-rights activists. Now, Jackson threatened with the troops, but he had also the political skill to find a face-saving way out for both sides. He threatened with the troops, but he came to the conclusion that perhaps the tariffs need to be reformed. So in the end, it was interesting that Congress passed a new tariff regime in early 1833, which ended the crisis of nullification. Because South Carolina had found a face-saving way out, nullification was not applied, and both sides could claim victory. Now this for me as a populist, as far as populism goes, the question of the bank and the question of nullification were the most essential legacies of the Jacksonian era. And... Returning to the Donalds, this is important because it shows you, first of all, Jackson was a very active president, he was a, and he knew the political game. He was not a showman. He was a general. He was a serious man. He was a statesman even. And he was controversial. He had his idiosyncrasies, of course. Now, when I say Jackson was very different from Donald Trump, I mean exactly that, It is not surprising that Martin Van Buren, as his successor for the Democrats, lost to the Whigs in 1840. In the sense, you could say, the Jacksonian era without Andrew Jackson was not possible. Now, what does this tell us? What does this tell us about the Donald when he refers to Andrew Jackson as his role model in public life? Now, Andrew Jackson would wince. He would turn in his grave at such a pathetic performance as the 45th president of the United States over the last four years. The fact of the matter is, he would have caned Donald Trump out of town. He would have caned him out of town. Now, the seventh president did not just have a pronounced dislike for fat cat bankers and rich merchants, but he also had a pronounced dislike for those like Donald Trump, who came to wealth by inheritance and fraud alone
2: The people my people are so smart and you know what else they say about my people the polls they say i have the most loyal people did you ever see that where i could stand in the middle of 5th avenue and shoot somebody and i wouldn't lose any voters okay it's like incredible <laughs> No they say Trump we love you too man Trump's voters are by far you know the i'm at 68 69% i'm at 90% total like Will you stay absolutely? I think it's 68 or 69 percent. Will you most likely stay? That gets into the 90s. Other guys are like a 10. A guy like Jeb Bush, he hasn't nobody, but he's like, I mean like they don't have people. They have nothing. Uh, Rubio, soft. They're all all soft, all soft. My people stay. Uh, By the way, Cruz, soft.
0: Well, I suppose, Donald, you are the greatest marksman in the world. The world has ever seen, has never seen anything like it. Why, here's another difference between Donald and Andrew. Donald likes to shoot. He likes to shoot. But the problem with the Donald is, he shoots first and asks questions later. Now, Andrew Jackson liked to duel as well. When his own honor was called into question or the honor of his wife... He would challenge for a duel. But the thing about Jackson is, he allowed his opponent to take the first shot. And when he responded, his bullet was always lethal. Now that's another difference. And I think he could have saved the Republic. He could have done us us a great favor. What a shame Andrew Jackson is not around. Imagine Donald and Andrew shooting it out on Fifth Avenue. Now, I'm going to ask myself, who's going to win that battle? I'm pretty sure who would win that battle. What a shame the Andrew is not around. What a pity for our nation. There is no way to compare the Jacksonian era and Trumpism. And when I hear this, these pundits on cable news spouting out that nonsense about the Trumpian era bearing any resemblance to the Jacksonian era... What a lot of rubbish. I mean, this must be the biggest joke going around in Washington these days. So, to finish off on the Andrew Jackson question, and by the way, American populism did not die with Andrew Jackson. American populism did not die with Andrew Jackson. You had later the Know-Nothings, you had Teddy Roosevelt, who had a populist streak as well, And remember, my take on populism has always been that I think populism in a democracy is essential. And it is interesting that even today, social and media elites use populism to discredit any agenda that goes outside the mainstream. But populism, as long as respecting the constitution and the institutions, is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with it. And remember, a lot of progress has always started as a populist agenda. And this is why I believe populism is not a dirty word. It's not a dirty word in a democracy. It's part and parcel of it. If healthy, ambitious, yes, but respecting the Constitution and the democratic process. Now, Jackson did that. Jackson did did exactly that. And that makes him a controversial figure, but it makes him a man who extended American democracy to white males. Now, there were no property requirements anymore when it came to elections. Obviously, elections were a state matter. But remember, it's interesting that when Jackson in 1824 lost and won in 1828, there was a reason for it and the reason was that a lot of states in those 4 years had shifted from determining electoral college members by legislate by by the legislature to a popular mandate so white male without property ownership requirements could suddenly determine the presidency which obviously flew in the face of the founding fathers, and their heirs. But that's, that's the service Jackson did the United States. And you could argue that even minorities who were still disenfranchised, and we know that disenfranchisement of voters is a serious problem still even today, they took Jackson democracy to heart. They said, we want the same rights like anybody else. And in the sense of early 19th century America, for all Jackson's faults and, you know, weaknesses and crimes even, this is something that I believe must be counted in his favor. I want to I wanna finish off this podcast by basically recommending the book by H.W. Brands. Now, you know, uh, with the uh, second lockdown in full swing, slowly turning into a hard lockdown, I have plenty of time to read, and I must admit, I enjoy myself thoroughly. Now, when I got out this book, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And the great thing about Brandt's uh, account is that he doesn't just talk about Andrew Jackson, but he also gives you a broader window into 19th century American politics. And you see a lot of trends that persist to this day. You know, you see a lot of trends that persist to this day. For example... Uh, the north south divide, the city rural divide, the East Coast elite despising a frontiersman. man now different yes, but the underlying trends of American politics have continued and by the way, especially if we you know hear these uh, pundits uh, spouting out that trivia on on cable television each and every day about trumpism um it's interesting to see that vitriol in American politics was Immense. I mean, you could argue that the eighteen twenty eight campaign, Adams versus uh, versus Jackson, was one of the dirtiest, if not the dirtiest, in American history. Does this mean I I dismiss the threat Donald Trump may be to democracy? Well, I I take a very nuanced view. I think the fact that he is uh, behaving the way he is following his election loss is disturbing, but. If you apply a historical context to the question, I think the American institutions will hold up easily. They will hold up just fine. And as I said, Trumpism has nothing to do with the Jacksonian era. Absolutely nothing. Now, that's where I want to stop. And if you get a chance to... Uh, acquire the book by H.W. Brands. By the way, there is a very well-read version on Audible out there as well, which I can highly recommend. Don't shelve it. Read it. It's worth your time. And also you will find, you can look up on YouTube, a fantastic documentary, um, Andrew Jackson documentary PBS, which will also give you a, a broader historic, historical perspective on the Jacksonian era. Well, That's it for me today. I hope we're going to speak to each other soon again. I gave you some material to pass your time with, getting away from the corona hyperbole. And um, stay at home, stay safe, speak soon. This podcast was brought to you by jörgtreter.com. And what is my political hero saying now?
1: Don't waste your time on me son, don't waste your time on me, I've been around, I know you, I know you, I know where the skeletons are in your closet.